podcast has bad words. <laughs> this is the Minimalist Private Podcast. Hello, patrons. Hello. This pod- podcast is brought to you, well, brought to you by you. Yeah. Patrons, thank you so much for this doing this. This episode of the Minimalist is brought to you by you. Ooh, that's good. Um, and Ryan, we're going to talk about, well, I think we should start with more about less. We often read an article here at the top, and this is an essay that I wrote. Okay. Some people have been calling it a poem. I'm so interested in these disagreements that we have, but we can start with more about less. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to our disagreements, and we may even disagree about the more about less segment. We might. And who knows, we'll even form a detente by the end of it, or fisticuffs. Mm, Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> This essay is called Success Does Not Exist. What do you think of when you think of success? A trophy? Award? Or achievement? A specific number of followers? A certain amount of money? While there's nothing wrong with these things, a dozen championships won't increase your tranquility. A thousand admirers won't bring you peace. And a million dollars won't make you happy. Craving an outcome anchors you to a future that does not exist and drags you from the peace of the present moment. If you always need more, more cash, more clout, more commendations, then you'll never have enough and you'll continue to yearn. Yearning leads only to misery and misery isn't success, it's failure. What about winning? Isn't that the definition of success? To take home a trophy is to take home a relic that points to the past, another attachment that rests you from the present moment. Winning isn't innately good or bad, but the compulsion to win, to compete, to be number one is a prison. Let's pause that for a moment, Ryan. Mm. Let's talk about this because when we talk about success, we often talk about it in two contexts in our culture. One is the sort of monetary or, or metric-based success. And now it, it, it's clout. That's why I put that in here. You know, Clout, cash, and commendations, right? Yeah, it's right. how many followers do I have? How much money do I have? Commendations would be you know, awards, recognition, mm. uh, the laurels, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so... I think often we think about success that way. Then we also think about it like there's a healthier version. It's wit called winning. Mm. And, and, and winning, if you, there's nothing wrong with winning. Mm-hmm. If you've won, you've won. But winning is not a byproduct of chasing the win. Right. Winning is a byproduct of performance. Yeah. It, in a sports context is, I think, the most dramatic example of that, right? You look at, at Kawhi Leonard when he brought the Toronto Raptors to win the championship the year before last. And, and, and you realize, like, well, he was the key component that was missing from that team. They already had a strong team. They had a, the best coach in, in the world, um, arguably. And then you bring in one of the best players, and all of a sudden you have – this elite performance that leads to winning. I've been watching the Tiger Woods documentary recently on HBO. I'll have to check it out. It's great. It's just called Tiger. And because it shows the rise, the fall, the rise. I mean, that's his story. Yeah. But it's also the story of, you know, it's every great hero's journey, right? Mm -hmm. And, And so what you learn from someone like 
Kawhi Leonard or especially someone like Tiger Woods. It those few years when he was winning, like he won the, like the four championships in a row, which mm-hmm. no one had ever done. Yeah, I forget what year that was. Maybe two thousand, somewhere around there. He's the reason why I got into golf in like the early aughts. Yeah, I mean it was like watching a magician. Exactly, it was insane. He was not. Now we use the term winning, and it's fine because he could say he was focused on winning or whatever. But that really wasn't the thing. He was so maniacally, pathologically focused on golf mm-hmm. that he couldn't not win. Mm. I, I mean, in fact, he was so far ahead. Mm. And when you look at some of those masters, like I think with the Augusta one where he was, it's a, a really difficult course, but he was like 10 or minus 10, mm. minus 11. And everyone else was like plus two, plus three. And you're mm. like, Oh, oh, he's clearly not competing with them. Yeah, because competition actually breeds mediocrity. Do you remember when you couldn't win at Tiger Woods? (laughs) (laughs) You're talking about the Sega Genesis game? (laughs) No, man, the Sony PlayStation game. Oh, same thing. (laughs) I mean, come on. We're gonna have to pay Sony and Sega rights now to to mention their consoles. It was Tiger Woods 2003, I believe. So Ryan and I in the corporate world, he would come over like after a long day of work and beat me in a game of golf how we would, absurd we would just sit there and play tiger woods golf and it was discontenting in a way because we were chasing a sort of win mm. it would have certainly been more fun and enjoyable had i not been so tied up in i need to win this to valid i need the oh, commendation yeah. it was yeah it was more about hanging out and laughing and making jokes and that was the fun part yeah right exactly and it was i unfortunately tainted it with competition mm. and i think when you see someone like Tiger winning those or, or someone who is performing an elite level, that's not about he's he is successful in spite of his success. Mm. Meaning it's not about the chasing. It's about yeah, and this sounds prescriptive, I don't mean it to be, but it's about being in the moment. He was very zen. In fact, there are moments in the documentary where it shows his his father was yeah, from a very young age, he would bring tiger into their garage and just shoot chip shots into a net Mm -hmm. like before tiger could walk or talk or anything and he was so mesmerized by those balls Mm. going into the net over and over and apparently he picked up a golf club before he could even walk all the way Mm. but as he got older and he was 12 13 teenager whatever and he was on the, the golf course with his father his father was always like agitating him intentionally to try to get him to still be able to perform under pressure Uh, because he knew that like, okay, this kid is really good and he can do well in a vacuum. mm -hmm. But how are you going to do when the mobs of people are showing up and watching and saying and whispering and, and and the pressure is there? How are you going to perform under pressure? And, and so it was not a maniacal focus to win. It was, it was a focus on, the moment the performance is always in the moment mm. you're not going to say hey i'm getting ready to go see a play yesterday mm-hmm. that doesn't even make any sense right, right? i'm going to see it tomorrow but i'm not actually seeing it until tomorrow mm. right mm-hmm. i'm seeing it i can see it only in the moment happiness by the way is the same thing i can't be happy in the past or happy in the future mm. i can be happy only now mm. and only when it's uncovered by the way Let me get back into this essay here. Imagine you're trapped in a spacious jail cell surrounded by trophies. Does that sound like success? 
if you win the game but lose equanimity, what have you won? Nothing. You've lost everything. What about raising well-rounded children or establishing better habits or donating to charity? Surely these are the endeavors of a successful person. You're free to do any of these things, to create and consume and contribute with abandon. But as soon as you attach happiness to an outcome, you place yourself back behind bars because you're living in the future again. Running after a result isn't success. It's chasing, chasing the past or the future. Success is always bound to chasing. Chasing is attachment. Attachment is suffering. Suffering is failure. This is my mathematical equation to prove to you, Ryan, once and for all. <laughs> Actually, I don't care to prove anything, but uh, I think it's fun to, to go through this. Yeah, it's it, an interesting perspective for sure. It, right, be, it, because again, not in a, uh, we talked about this on the minimal episode on Tuesday, but, but the... It's not an indictment on success. Mm-mm. We're not going to caught up in definitions. In fact, I want to talk to you in a moment about definitions mm-hmm. because I don't think definitions go anywhere. Mm. And uh, we had some disagreements you and I had uh, mm. on the Ego Trap podcast mm, episode, or the yeah. private podcast. It's probably my favorite episode that we've recorded. And if I yeah. were to die tomorrow, mm-hmm. I certainly hope not, but um, that's an attachment as well. Mm. Uh, and, and so... Oh, yeah, because we were talking about hope and we were talking about ego. Okay, this is all coming back to me now. Okay. And, and at first, we got caught up with sort of some definitions and semantics or whatever. And ultimately, where we ended up for mm-hmm. the people who stuck around, uh, which, by the way, I, I sent you some of the, the comments. I mean, there were some people who had I mean, go back and read the comments, patrons, on those two uh, on on that episode, the ego trap, uh, the video version and the um, audio version both had some phenomenal comments on mm. them. One on the video version had to do with uh, about uh, it was that line where the person said that I finally saw my my child for the first time in the moment mm. and it felt so much better than any sort of achieving or or so-called success. Yeah. Um, that's great. And so what happens is is what we're trying to do is illuminate the truth. And mm. sometimes, unfortunately, we have this thing called language. Mm. It, it has ruined our lives, Ryan. Yeah. Language is the worst thing. This is my hypothesis. Language sure. is the worst thing that has happened to humans and all of human existence. Mm. Now, the reason I say that is it, it is what takes us out of the moment, is what allows us to ruminate about the future mm. and create these sort of false futures. And it really makes us miserable, yeah. right? But it also gives us the tools to talk about some of these things. Mm. Labels can be useful. A diagnosis when you go to a doctor can be useful. Sure. Sometimes, even if it's just... Oh, you have OCD mm. because it can it can put that thing in a box for you to help you get out of the box. Yeah. However, if that box becomes trapping in a way, mm. because oh great, now I have OCD, I I can't function anymore. Yeah. Well, as a person who has OCD, that diagnosis led me to better understand. Oh yes, I have this thing, and it, it allowed me to sit with it for a moment, mm-hmm. but also it didn't allow me to be. I didn't allow it to victimize me, that diagnosis, to let me be stuck in that box. Mm. And that's what all language does. It labels Mm. are important until we start to give them too much meaning. Yeah. I think uh, Andrew Schultz's It Is and It Isn't Mm. applies to language. Yes. And yeah, it's neither good nor bad. It is good and it is bad. 
Mm-hmm. It is and it isn't. <laughs> the definition thing, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit, uh, mainly because like when it comes to like the word minimalism, for example, mm-hmm. if someone comes up to me, they're like, you're not a minimalist. Mm-hmm. You drive a car. You fly in airplanes. Mm-hmm. You, you know, like there's all these value judgments based on the word minimalism. Sure. And it really helps to stop and say, well, let's talk about what minimalism means. Yeah. Let's start there so yes. we can have a, you know, a reasonable conversation. Uh, let's talk about what minimalism is. So uh, I think sometimes we can get caught up in definitions and maybe you can like stilt a good conversation. But often, if you're not coming from the same definition with words, it's impossible to have an intelligent conversation. It's a one-sided conversation, basically. Right, and, and you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. And what I'm saying here is, in fact, if you were to take that back a step farther and make it a, mm. a, a parodic exaggeration, mm. it's like it's like saying it's impossible to have a conversation without language. Well, yeah, yeah, it, mm. it, and so you're right. We have to we have commonly accepted definitions for things. Well, the reason I say definitions don't go anywhere mm. is because we start to look at the form of the thing, mm. and if someone wants to argue with you about minimalism Mm -hmm. or the definition of ego or attachment or success or Mm -hmm. whatever Mm -hmm. we if i wanted to argue with you about the definition of success Mm -hmm. i'd be looking at the form of the uh, of success and i wouldn't be looking at the essence of what we're actually talking about another way to look at this ryan is Hmm. is definitions illuminate concepts yeah but they don't get us to that which is concrete they might open the door to that which is concrete Hmm. but what gets us to what is concrete is approaching these things not from a podium uh but from but from a position of an open mind Mm. and i fail at that all the time Mm. and and i'm doing much better with respect to opening my mind to other perspectives Uh, and, and yet not having a mind that is so open that everything just falls out of it, right? Mm. Or falls into it as well. You can't let everything in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, it's the whole garbage in, garbage out thing. A- and so the reason that I say definitions go nowhere mm. is they often, unfortunately, we get tangled. They become mm. a fence upon which like, oh, I'm trapped here and it's keeping me from the freedom of hmm. the essence of the thing, the truth of the thing. We can never define the truth. We, uh, Anthony DeMello just says yeah, we can define what the truth isn't. Mm. And, and, and so when we're talking today about success, quite often we're talking about what success isn't, right? Let me go back to this equation, Ryan. Hmm. Running after a result isn't success. It's chasing. Success is always bound to chasing. Chasing is attachment. Attachment is suffering. Suffering is failure. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the definitions of those things. I'm talking about the essence of those mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. And I say here, do the math. If A equals B and B equals C, then success equals failure. Now, I don't mean that literally, like anytime you've succeeded, you failed. What I mean is that the chasing creates a discontent in us Mm. and what i mean by that is by chasing we actually don't get the thing we wanted it creates the opposite of the thing that we wanted or worse we get something we thought we wanted yes (laughs) yeah and it turns out not to be success at all and then so what do we feel we feel failure and that's really the point i'm trying to illustrate here Mm. this may be hard for you to grasp because you've been sold a meme your entire life you've been told that success equals happiness that you're just one accomplishment away from happy. Mm. Hmm. But you weren't given the truth. Happiness is your default state. 
It appears when you stop chasing. Happiness needn't be pursued to be reached. The pursuit of happiness is just another form of chasing. Mm. It is only when we drop the pursuit that we realize happiness, influence, wealth, and status are all hapless hunts. Getting more does not make you successful. Striving for more makes you excessful. Excess is accompanied by restlessness, pain, and misery. So travel the path towards success if you want. Simply know that path diverges from peace. Peace is found only in the present through awareness and letting go. That's not to say that you should let go or that you should be happy or that you should not fail. There is no should, but if you want peace, it is not found on the horizon or in the rear view. I give a hat tip to Jeanette McCurdy for this conversation. She was actually supposed to be here this week, but mm-hmm. uh, canceled due to uh, COVID, I believe. But she'll, she'll be back in as soon as um, not her. I don't think she has COVID. I'm saying just with all the circumstance, everything that's going on right now, um, she wanted to postpone. So uh, we'll have her back on. She's been on the podcast before, but we were on her podcast. It's called Empty Inside. Mm-hmm. And we started having this conversation and I told her, I said, I don't think success exists. And she's mm-hmm. like, well, wait, what do you mean by that? Like it, and, and this is really literally what I meant, but I just didn't, wasn't able to articulate it yeah. in essay form yeah. at the time. But right. Yeah, it's a great perspective, especially for those who are chasing success because they think success is going to bring them happiness. I think, uh, yeah, I think this is spot on for sure. And if you, pre- if you prefer the chasing to peace, which a lot of people do, I would argue that most of us prefer chasing to peace, mm. then the chasing may be more appropriate for you. Mm. I'm saying for me, the cost of admission is chaos. Mm. And in that chaos, we, um, we don't experience peace. I th- and I prefer peace to the opposite. Yeah, I think we, we love stimulus. We love stimulating our brains. Yes. And there's a great stimulation that happens with the chase. And anytime we are stimulating our brain, there's a cost. Right. So we have to decide if it's worth that cost or not drinking coffee is mm-hmm. it's a uh and, and we'll talk about chase here because because it, 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 it's funny because it's a piece of me wants to go back to the definition mm-hmm. um but you know drinking caffeine mm-hmm. it is a chase to be more alert sure. it is a it is a chase to stimulate our brain mm. there's a cost for drinking caffeine for me at least like there's yes. a crash that happens there's mm-hmm. There's an addiction that happens. There's acrylamides in it, which are unhealthy. Yes, my my most feared mides, the <laughs> acrylas. Um, but but yeah, I mean that's and and what what you're getting at with this essay really is saying, if you want peace, then you know you you have to choose peace and not choose to chase. But it's again though, I think that because we love stimulating our brains. Mm-hmm. There's just always that pull towards or the temptation to chase something. So let, let's well, go. Oh, let's go talk on. about the chase then. Yeah, let's I, talk about the chase. So, so, so my I posited uh-huh. that we're always chasing something. Yes. Okay. And, and I think that is as, as a statement, if, if you take out the word always and, mm. and were to replace it with 
frequently, yeah. most of the time. By the way, my flag isn't planted in here. I'm just, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, it's something that, it's an observation that I'm making. What I'm saying is you are fundamentally right is that human beings by and large are always chasing. Right. Uh, I completely agree with that. What I will say is there are moments in each of our lives where we're no longer chasing. Yes. And and they're they're brief. Now, when we talked on the minimal episode about finding that thing you can't not do, mm-hmm. as soon as you've done that, you're no longer chasing. Because it, I know with you, a lot of the times it's snowboarding. Mm. And it's not the chase of snowboarding. It may be, you may be chasing it leading up to it. And afterward, it's like waiting for the next time but when we are in the moment i I hate that because it sounds prescriptive you can't prescribe meditativeness right right uh you can't prescribe uh, being in a state of no mind you Mm -hmm. can't you can't prescribe um flow state Mm -hmm. it is something that appears during full immersion or Mm -hmm. exposure Mm -hmm. and so it starts with exposure and then leads to immersion when when you're truly in that flow state, you're uh, in snowboarding, you're really immersed in the moment. Right. And in that moment, mm-hmm. there is no longer a chase. It's like being at the beach and swimming. Yes. Yeah. You're it, just enjoying the ocean. Mm-hmm. I hate sand. If it wasn't for the ocean, I don't think I would ever go to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the worst beaches would have no ocean. Oh, right. That's called a desert. <laughs> <laughs> and who goes to the desert for fun? Well, not a lot of people. There is actually, I have seen <laughs> sandboarding. Oh, really? Yeah, which um, I actually am kind of interested yeah, in. Yeah, you'd probably enjoy that. That would be fun. And you would be in the moment. And right. and, and so the point is, yes, I think that, uh, it doesn't matter what I think, the truth is that we often chase. Mm. There are biological reasons for that, you know, whether you we are apex predators or um, we are you know, agriculturalists or, or whatever, we, we're... You know, trying to fulfill our basic needs. But as soon as we meet those basic needs, then we start building our own prisons, mm. our prisons of status mm. and, and success mm-hmm. and achievement and all of these things. You know, it's the Confucius quote, a healthy man wants, uh, uh, yeah, a healthy man wants 10,000 things, a, a sick man wants but one. Right. And and really what that is, is like, oh, once you have your basic needs met, you realize like, Oh, there are all these things I'm going to start chasing. Mm. Not realizing that I have an option to not chase. In our culture, that we even say that's lazy or not ambitious enough mm. or, or, or whatever. But there is no should. So let's move on to Casey's question here. She sent us a text message and you know, I thought it was fascinating. I'll read part of it, Ryan. And... I thought it'd be a good jump off point for a conversation because we're talking about disagreement earlier and how you and I disagreed on the ego trap podcast. And this is actually her response to that um, podcast. She was texting about the obligations, minimal Mm. version of that. She said, hi, Josh and Ryan. I listened to your podcast about obligations today. I feel, I feel strongly in disagreement about the message, Mm. but maybe you can clarify for me. Mm. Okay. Uh, yeah, I have no desire to convince you of anything. I can certainly add clarity when, because I know there are times where you and I might not be clear. We might not get our entire thoughts out. We might even need to record an entire podcast episode again, um, <laughs> in, in order to, uh, in order to really we'll add charge some a million clarity. dollars for that one episode. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Casey goes on to say, after my mom died, 
My dad announced to the family that it was time he started living life for himself. He moved away, remarried, and stopped answering the phone. One of the last times I spoke with him, he said I needed to move on and live my best life for me. We gave up trying to contact him. His decision to set down the proverbial boulder of fatherhood devastated two generations of his biological family. I feel like the shift toward individualism in modern society is very toxic. We put too much weight on our own needs over the needs of others. That's a value judgment there. We can talk about that. My concern is that I feel like your message today might be giving some individuals license that it is a good thing to give up on certain obligations. Would love to hear back. As always, I greatly enjoy your work. Hmm. So let's talk about the, I think this is, it breaks down pretty easily when we start to say, okay, let's assume for a second this is true, that that a shift toward individualism in modern society is very toxic. Hmm. What's the healthy percentage? Yeah. And as soon as you ask that question, you realize like, oh, so are you telling me that it's unhealthy for me to spend 80% of my time alone? Mm. And, and that I should spend what? Only 50%? Like what is your percentage? As soon as we start to do that, you realize like, oh, I'm projecting my own values on to someone else. And, mm. and, and, and this statement in particular, we put too much weight on our own needs over the needs of others. Let me just say this. If you don't put more weight on your own needs, you will never meet the needs of others. True. I think it comes down to like, are you putting, the way I look at this for my own life, again, not trying to prescribe anything here, but there's a difference between putting my well-being first and putting my uh, pleasures first or my, um, I don't know. Let's just leave it at that. So- yeah. In my life, um, my health, my well-being will come first, but my pleasures, my preferences to certain things don't always come first because ultimately like with uh, Mariah, for example, let's say she wants to have chicken for dinner, but I really want to have steak. I'm not mm-hmm. going to like plant my flag and like sit there and be like, no, we're having steak. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to put her preference first because our relationship, a good relationship is part of my well-being. Mm. So, you know, I, I agree that like we have to take care of our well-being first before we can fully give to others. I mean, with Casey's father, I see what she's, I, man, there's so many questions I have for Casey because does your father he just, just doesn't want to talk to you anymore? Because it doesn't sound like he's cutting you out of his life. He's basically saying, I'm going to live the life that I want to live did he say not call me anymore? Like, I'm, I'm interested. Basically, yeah. I mean, it, so you, and he certainly communicated it through his actions. And, and let me be clear, Casey. I'm sorry this happened to you. And yeah, I, think it's a, I think it's a really shitty thing what he did. Mm-hmm. And and I wouldn't want that to happen to me. I also wouldn't want to happen to me what did happen to me. And so um, I will, I'll, say, I'll say this. My father was, you know, if you saw our, our film Less Is Now, you, mm-hmm. you know that my father was abusive to my mother when I was really little. I saw him only once after I was three. One time when I was seven, he died when I was nine. Mm -hmm. And so he also didn't stick around, Mm -hmm. but he moved to Chicago after we sort of escaped from from him. And uh, he was mentally ill and that's not his fault either. He was schizophrenic and and bipolar and and, Mm -hmm. uh, had his own 
just dramatic challenges with that. Mm. But what I'll say is that had he stuck around, that would have actually been more devastating to our family than him leaving. Now, I'm not saying that is obviously the case for, it, there's no way to know with, mm. with Casey's father, but it, there is a possibility that his uh, devastation mm. of your family could have been far, far worse. You said it, his, it devastated two generations of his biological family. That sucks, right? But I, I will say that maybe his leaving actually saved some suffering, saved you from some pain, mm. uh, saved you from additional discontent. And, and the real discontent always comes, as we mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. it always comes from that external, right, Ryan? It's, sure. it's the, we actually mentioned this on the, the minimal episode, that, that external, and, and so tethering our well-being and our happiness, even, even to our parents or to our spouse, to our mm -hmm. best friend, to our business partner, to our coworkers, our family, to our community even, mm which is a nebulous word, to our society, whatever you want to call it, all of a sudden, that's an attachment. And with those attachments, we will get dragged if we allow them to drag us. And that's what's happening here, unfortunately. Yeah, I, you know, I don't, I disagree. I don't think it's so obvious that her dad just left and said, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I, I bet you there's some condition that he has outlined, like, hey, if you want to be in my life, this is how you can be in my life. Um, I'm projecting with my own experience with my father because my dad, who won't talk to me because I'm not part of a religion that uh, f morally is against, it, it, the, the religion go goes against my morals. Mm -hmm. So I could go against my own morals. I could become part of this religion, be a very good you know, servant of this religion. Um, I could do everything that my dad asks and then ha and he would be willing to be part of my life. Right. It would be a miserable life. It's not, a, and that's my point with attachment. Yes, it, because you're not willing to pay that cost, and so mm -hmm. you have to have either some sort of detachment from that. Otherwise, you get dragged by it. Either right. either dragged by compromising your morals, or dragged by the discontent you experience because he's not not no. talking to you. And let's say I could wave a magic wand and have my father in my life. It would still be a the way my life is right now. It would still be a very bad relationship mm. because he would still be pre he, he wouldn't just flip a switch and be like oh now i accept you not being part of this religion and i accept your lifestyle and i uh, and i accept what you're doing he would still be pressuring me every time we talked in fact before he cut me out of his life that's what he did every time we talked he pressured me mm -hmm. into uh you know just beating me with the bible he tried to convince you right so you know, again, even if I could wave a magic wand and have him in my life, it would be miserable. All that to say is that it sucks that my father is not in my life, but it's something that I've made peace with. And sure, I wish things were different, um, but I don't, you know, I don't have this because I used to have this thing of, well, I deserve a good dad. You know, I'm because I'm born on this planet. I deserve to have a father. You know, he's alive. I deserve to have him in my life. I don't deserve anything. Yep. So accepting the way things are. Bingo. Has really helped me get through uh, and let go of that attachment. And, you know, the other thing, too, I'll recommend our good friend Rob Bell talks about some people that you want to have in your life a certain way. Mm -hmm. There's a relationship that you want to have that you will never have. And Casey, 
That is what is happening right now. There's a relationship that you want to have with your father that you will never have. And that sucks. Yeah. He, he talks about having a funeral for that relationship. It's exactly where I was going for it. Yeah. So when I had so. that funeral for the relationship with my dad, like it really helped me accept mm. and it helped me to let go of that expectation or that, that, that thing that I felt like I deserved. Mm-hmm. Um, I no longer felt it. So yes, having, having a, I mean, you could have a literal funeral if you want. Yeah. Um, I didn't have a literal funeral, but I did have a literal you know, feeling of like, okay, what, what would a funeral feel like for my father? What would a funeral feel like for that relationship? Mm-hmm. And uh, it will help you move on, Casey. And that funeral, whether it's literal or figurative, mm-hmm. what I like about that is it is, that's the, the doorway. That is the form, mm. but it gets you to the essence. The essence is, hey, yes, I currently wish this relationship was different. But even mm. that wishing mm. is a form of attachment. Yeah. And, and if I can, you can wish all you want, but if the relationship is dead, it's not going to come back to life. I want to read an excerpt here because Casey ended her question with this, the sentence. She said, my concern is that I feel like your message today might be giving some individuals license that it is a good thing to give up on certain obligations. It's not a good thing to give up obligations. It's not a bad thing either. Ryan, a moment ago, said, you know, I, I, I take care of myself first, my own well-being. It makes sense for me to do that. And then it also makes sense for him, given his circumstances, to occasionally compromise his own preferences. Mm-hmm. A- and by the way, if you put your flag there and said, no, I'm not going to compromise my prefer- preferences, that's not good or bad either. It's not immoral mm-hmm. for you to say, no, I am going to eat the quinoa tonight and not the rice. Yeah. And, and there's there's nothing wrong with you doing it. It's not bad that you have your own preferences and you choose not to compromise them. You can choose to compromise them. That's not good or bad either. Yeah. It's just, am I willing to pay this cost is the question. Uh, dude, it makes me think like there's a list of people in my head right now that I know are unwilling to compromise their preferences and they're all alone. They cannot. They cannot have a long-term romantic relationship mm-hmm. because they're unwilling to compromise any and, of their and preferences. And that's fine. As and, long- and that's totally okay. Yeah, but uh, but for me, like I am an extrovert. I don't want to be alone. Sure. So there's a price I have to pay right. <laughs> to, and, and, in order to have people in my life. And, and you're asking yourself, "Am I willing to pay that price?" Mm-hmm. And if the answer to that is yes, then then I w- if I'm looking at my own life and I, yes, I am willing to pay the price for this thing, then pay it happily and mm-hmm. say yes, you can have the white rice, skip the quinoa. I'm just so happy to be, I'm so willing to pay that price. That that, that helps me mm. in, in the letting go. Mm. Because otherwise I'm going to, no, I want the quinoa. I can't believe she yeah, wants the white rice. If you're holding account, yeah. if you're holding resentment for the prices that you have to pay. That's attachment. That's attachment. And I would say then, then you're, it's not worth paying that price if you're holding resentment on t- towards it all the time. Anyway. In our continuing series, uh, The Way to Love by <laughs> Anthony DeMello. Look how big my hands are, Ryan. This is a regular size book. Oh my God, you're a giant. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, these are like 31 daily meditations. Mm. And this one is called, What Must I Do? And I thought this was a great way to answer Casey. Let a, a truly wise person answer Casey's question here, at least circuitously, you know, as we weave through the passages here. Think of yourself in a concert hall, listening to the strains of the sweetest music you... 
No, let me set the tone for you. All right, that's perfect. All right, think of yourself in a concert hall listening to the strains of the sweetest music when you suddenly remember that you forgot to lock your car. You are anxious about the car. You cannot walk out of the hall, and you cannot enjoy the music. There you have a perfect image of life as it is lived by most most human beings. Yeah. Think about this for a moment. So so ha- something like that has happened to you. You leave the house, I leave the stove on, uh, I, whatever it is, and all of a sudden we become so fixated mm. on that thing that the symphony around us is dulled. Yeah. It's still there. Mm-hmm. And you know it's still there, mm. but you're not experiencing it the same way. Why? Because of the the mind that, that is me all the time chasing. I'll be having a moment with Mariah, and like, this happened last night where I was like, I had to, you know, I had to get you questions for uh, Monday's podcast about, um, you know, why you stopped looking at the media and why you stopped looking at politics. I had to get in, uh, you know, this this agenda for this meeting that I have with the men's group. I uh, we had to prepare for today's podcast. I'm sitting there with Mariah having a great time and then all of a sudden like this anxiety washes over me mm-hmm. of like all these things. And then I was able to let it go. And what's interesting is that I, I let it go. I could live in the moment, but then I started to feel this angst again and I was like, what was I just anxious about? And I sat there and dug up everything that I was anxious about. And I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? Digging up anxiety. Is it's a, like, yeah, is like a, the anxiety is, this, is the trigger uh-huh. for me to start searching for something to be anxious about. Well, and that could be helpful in one way. Mm. Let me, so, so I think sometimes what I find to be useful is if I'm feeling anxious as opposed to, to looking at the, the thing that's causing the anxiety in the moment, uh, trying to look at the root of the anxiety mm-hmm. is yeah, instead of trying to fix the the surface level thing really getting to the root of the thing can be useful but what you're talking about is 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 literally trying to make yourself anxious yeah and by the way i think that's a perfect metaphor for what we do with social media and email and, and giving everyone oh. access to yeah you know, google calls there was a guy at google who called the smartphone the 79th organ mm. i wrote about this in, in love yeah. people use things and really i was writing about distraction yeah. and how how insidious it is that we have this distraction machine in our pocket and all in in any moment someone can interrupt your peace and inject some anxiety into your life and man that's dangerous yeah for life to those who have the ears to hear is a symphony but very very rare indeed is the human who hears the music Mm. why because they're busy listening to the noises that their conditioning and their programming have put into their heads. That and something else, their attachments. And attachment is a major killer of life. To really hear the symphony, you must be sensitively attuned to every instrument in the orchestra. When you take pleasure only in the drum, you cease to hear the symphony because the sound of the drum has blotted out the other instruments. You may have your preferences for drum or violin or piano. No harm in these. For a preference does not damage your capacity to hear and enjoy the other instruments. How fascinating is that? We were just talking about the the quinoa versus white rice preference. And it's like, yeah, there's no harm in that. It's just a preference of mine. And I can still enjoy the piano 
even if I um, really enjoy the drum more or whatever, right? Yeah. But the moment your preferences turn into an attachment, mm. it hardens you to the other sounds. You suddenly undervalue them and it blinds you to its particular instrument for you give it a value out of all proportion to its merit. Mm. Isn't that true? Mm. We give something so much, you, you get a bad comment on Twitter or something mm -hmm. and it gets so much more value in your mind, more space in your mind. It's disproportionate to its merit. Mm. And that is true with everything that, that burdens us. What is happening here with Casey and her dad leaving Yes, it's traumatizing. I get it. It's a horrible experience. Mm. But even something as big as that, we can blow out of proportion by continuing to throw fuel on the fire. Yeah. Man, uh, there's something, because Casey has a, I totally see where she's coming from, but there's something about, she's worried about us giving permission to people like, uh, like parents who have these obligations of parenting. Mm-hmm. And, we're, you know, we're not saying, like, you can just let go of a parenting obligation. Like, that's not what we're saying. And her dad didn't need us to say, it's okay to let go of that parenting obligation. Yeah. There's something much deeper going on. Let's talk about that. That, yeah, that Casey needs to really dig into. Mm -hmm. It's not, it has nothing to do with, oh, th there's no one listening to this podcast that is on the fringe right now. Or listening to that the obligation podcast that mm -hmm. was on the fringe and that was like, Finally, Josh and Ryan said I could let go of my parenting obligation. Right. That, now, now, someone could construe something that way. Sure. And and that would just tell me that, oh, they are, had already made that decision. Exactly. And they, they were looking for any sign to mm -hmm. come out of heaven mm -hmm. or the ground or their podcast speakers. Right. And and we were that s sign. But they had, the decision was already made long ago yes and we did not make the decision for anyone and so can you abandon your family yes you can do i recommend it of course i don't recommend it um in fact i would i think the the i think maybe the middle ground is what if we let go of the obligation and it allows us to love the family even more. Mm. And that's really what I've been working on with Bex in particular is, is letting go of the attachment. You know, we talked about that a few weeks ago on the How to Love episode and, and the subsequent Maximal episode that week with Bex. Mm. And, and, and really, I mean, it's still something I, I, I'm not there. Like, I'm there on the attachment to stuff. I, I don't have the attachment to stuff anymore. Mm. I'm not there on the attachment, uh, on letting go 100% of the attachment to the people I love the most. Sure. But I know, I, I know because of what I've experienced with the letting go of many other things, mm -hmm. that the real appreciation of those things, the experience, the exposure, the, the, the immersion in the moment comes from removing the attachment, the non-attachment, mm. not the detachment, but the, the, the non-attachment. Now look at a person or a thing you have an attachment for. Hmm. Someone or something to whom you have handed over the power to make you happy or unhappy. Or a best friend. Well, that's the thing, right, Ryan? Like, I, the attachment really is as simple as that. Mm. An attachment is someone or something to whom you have handed over the power to make you happy or unhappy. Mm. And unfortunately, Casey, that's where you are right now. You're saying that you are devastated. 
and her the rest two generations yes. have this attachment. Right. And yeah. so so it makes it feel like as though that is the appropriate response or the only response. Ooh. Uh, that that just like cuz that goes with any group of people who have the same attachment to things. And then when you have the a group of people who are all agreeing on the same we should be attached to this. Mm. It just it just it strengthens it. It's like a yeah, it's like a yeah, it's, it strengthens the justification for being miserable, for being angry, for being sad, for being whatever. Well, think about that attachment. So so we talk about the term sometimes complect, which means to interweave two or more things together. Mm-hmm. And when you think of a rope, it is a bunch of individual strains mm-hmm. complected together, woven together, right? Mm-hmm. Well, when you have an entire family, all of a sudden you have your one, your singular, where the word simplect mm-hmm. comes from, mm-hmm. the singular um, attachment, mm-hmm. but then you weave everyone else's attachment into it. Mm. Society, culture, Dude. family, religion. And the more, the more. How strong is that? Yeah, the more weaving you have, like the more justification to do crappy things. Oh, yeah. Well, to have to have not to, just to take. You know, when I say crappy, I mean that's obviously a value judgment, but to to take actions that are harmful to other people. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's crazy. It, it just yeah. And when we do something that harms other people, yeah. Now, I, I want to be clear. Her father here, just off the what what she provided here, mm. it doesn't sound like he did something to harm the family. He didn't do something, which is he didn't stay, right. and that sounds like it harmed the family. And I obviously take your word for it that that was harmful. That's a, a shitty thing to do. Mm. And one could even make the argument that's an amoral. I'm sorry, that it's an unmor immoral thing to do mm. uh, is to harm someone else. Now, sure. if I were to just jump across this table, leap at you, and punch you. That's harming you directly. And, or if I just call, started calling you terrible names or whatever, one could certainly make it an argument that that is not a moral thing for me sure. to do. Yeah. Now, if I punch you to protect myself to save my life, mm-hmm. then a little it's different. N- yeah, it's certainly different. One right? thing I want, I, I want to uh, challenge uh, Casey to do here too is the next, because it sounds like her and her family, the, you know, when she's with these generations of people whose lives are ruined, who are devastated. Not ruined, but devastated. Um, whenever you're around these people and you are talking about how your father has devastated these generations, you're, you're taking away from enjoying the family that you have. Mm. So not only are you upset because you don't have something that you feel entitled to, but now you are ignoring what you do have because of this attachment. That's a great point, man. Wonderful. I'm, yeah. Observe how, because of your concentration on getting this person or thing and holding on to it and enjoying it exclusively to the exclusion of other things and persons, and how, because of your obsession with this person or thing, you have less sensitivity to rest to the rest of the world. You have become hardened and have the courage to see how prejudiced and blind you have become in the presence of this object of your attachment. Mm-hmm. Isn't that true? When we truly feel like we... We have to have something. We th- the easiest examples are like material things. I remember back in the corporate world, I needed a fancy watch, right? A, mm-hmm. a tag Hewer watch. It was right. like three thousand dollars or four thousand mm-hmm. dollars, right? It tells the same time that a Casio does, right? 
Uh, it does maybe look more aesthetically pleasing, mm-hmm. arguably. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen some beautiful Timexes, though, for yeah. you know, uh, uh, relatively inexpensive. My point is, though, when we covet that Tag Heuer watch, that Rolex, that Lexus, whatever, all of a sudden we become hardened. And, and we aren't, we don't see how blind we have become in the presence of this object. Mm-hmm. We're blinded by that thing. And as you alluded to earlier, it's that attachment is actually removing us from the moment. Mm-hmm. Moment. Yeah. I like the one with the little calculator on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think they outlawed, outlawed, outlawed those in our school at one point. Oh, yeah. You couldn't have it That's because right. it was cheating. Dude, I had one in school that, um, you could program to uh, as a remote controller, <laughs> and it got taken away because the teacher got me turning on and off the TV. <laughs> <laughs> when you uh. see this, you will feel a yearning to rid yourself of every attachment. The problem is how? Renunciation and avoidance is no help, for to blot out the sound of the drum once again makes you as hard and insensitive to concentrate solely on the drum. Let's stop there for it. So, so... Um, if we concentrate just on the father here, yes, then we're attached to it. But whenever we denounce something mm. or renounce something, we're automatically just as tethered to the thing that we renounce. Mm. And so it's not about renouncing the father either. No. It's about how, as you said earlier, it's about how things are. Yeah. Like what is, what's the other music going on in your life, Casey? Mm. Like there's a symphony happening. Yes. And uh, maybe there is a drum you wish that was there that th- isn't there, but there's still some beautiful music happening. What a great analogy there to to extend on his analogy, Ryan. What you're saying is, imagine going to a symphony and saying, I wish a different drum was playing. Right. That's not what's happening. Right. And you, there's not much you can do other, and it, by having that continued wish. What happens here? Mm. It removes you from the symphony. What you need is not renunciation, but understanding and awareness if your attachments have caused you suffering and sorrow, that's a help to understand. If you have at least once in your life had the sweet taste of freedom and the delight in life that unattachment brings, that too is a help. It, is also, it also helps to consciously notice the sound of the other instruments in the orchestra. But there is no substitute for the awareness that shows you the loss you suffer when you overvalue the drum and when you turn a deaf ear to the rest of the orchestra. The day that that happens and your attachments to the drum drops, you will no longer say to your friend, how happy you have made me. For in so saying, you flatter his ego and manipulate him into wanting to please you again. And you give yourself the illusion that your happiness depends on your friend. Rather, you will say, when you and I met, happiness arose. Mm. How great is that? That subtle shift, mm. knowing that, like, Ryan, I've had so many incredibly joyous times with you. Yeah. It's not that you make me happy, but there are times there's an alchemy there yeah. that happiness arises. But also, happiness arising is not contingent upon you or Jordan or Sean or Jessica or Bex or any other person. Mm. It just it simply arises. That leaves the happiness uncontaminated by his ego and yours. Neither of you can take the credit for it. I think that's important. Mm -hmm. And if that makes it possible for the two of you to part with no attachment to each other 
or to the experience which your meeting generated, for you have enjoyed not each other, but the symphony that arose in your meeting. And when you move on to the next situation or person or work, you do so without any emotional carryover. And then you, and, and then you make the joyous discovery that the symphony arises there too, mm. playing a different melody in the next situation and the next mm. and the next. You know, Josh and I are not, well, I'll speak for myself. You know, I don't look at these conversations as a way to help people be monks and to not have any attachments, to not chase anything. But this is a tool to help me deliberately choose what I am am not attached to. So yes. if I have anxiety arise and then I find something to be anxious about, like I can ask myself, like, is it worth me chasing this anxiety right now mm -hmm. so yeah i just i don't want to uh and again just speaking for myself i don't want people to think that like we're you know trying to like be these zen buddhists or whatever it is because ultimately that's what a monk is right like they just let go of attachment for everything and i think there is a you know there's on one end of the spectrum you have a monk on the other end of the spectrum you have someone who is Chase, oh, an emotional hoarder chasing success yeah or an emotional hoarder but there's a there's a there's a middle ground that i think these ideas and these conversations help me get to personally it's funny because i was going to say monk versus elon musk but that brings up a different conversation because i don't think he's chasing success no no i don't think he is either i think he's doing what he needs to do there are a lot of people who chase elon musk's success mm. they want to be successful like elon musk but if i were to if i were to go back in time and, and write down every single component of his recipe. Mm -hmm. And I hand it to you, Ryan, here are the 3,416 steps to become just like Elon Musk. Yeah. And you did those things, every step in the appropriate sequence, you still would not become Elon Musk because you wouldn't have the essence. You'd be so focused on the fix, the solution, the mm. prescription, the how-to, that you wouldn't, under, you wouldn't have a deep understanding of of the essence. Yeah. And, and that's why I totally agree with what you're saying here, Ryan. It's not about, we're not telling anyone that you should let go of attachments. I, I said that in the essay, in fact. That's not right. to say that you should let go or that you should be happy or you should not fail. There is no should. And I think what the, the problem that we run into, Ryan, is our culture has moralized these things to say, well, it's either good or bad. Mm. And so you have to drop the good and bad if you want to be able to even engage in a conversation like this. Mm -hmm. When you're listening here, be I get it all the time. It's, it's still in my head. Well, that's good. That's bad. The attachment, that must be bad. No, 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 no. What Ryan is saying here is understand the attachment because mm -hmm. we don't even know that we have all of these attachments. Yeah. And, and if you don't believe me, try to get rid of something. Anthony DeMello has a... Um, exercise in his book, uh, his book Awareness, where he says, go up to someone that you love and say, I would rather be happy than to have you in my life. Mm. And most of us would be afraid to say that. I've said that to Bex, I've said it to you. Mm -hmm. um, and, and really what that means is it means I, if I'm being candid with myself there, mm. then the opposite would be what? 
uh, I'd rather have you than happiness. Yeah. I'd, I'd rather be miserable and have you in my life mm. than someone else. Now, now, uh, I'd rather have you. I'd rather have you in my life be miserable than have something else. But I think the important thing to note here is we do that all the time, even with our stuff. So the relationship side of things, that's pretty hard for the average person to grasp. Yeah. Although you recognize that you've had relationships that have failed in the past sure, and you got over it mm-hmm. and happiness arose again without that person mm-hmm. and there was still meaning and contentment and joy without that person. Or maybe someone you love died or abandoned you. Yeah. Did happiness ever arise after that? Yeah, yeah it course. did. And so it's totally possible. And, and, and so I think understanding not the, the chase so much as, uh, or understanding that yes, we all chase, we all have attachments, but we don't even know what those are. And if you have an exercise where you just try to get rid of a thing in your house and that thing is difficult to get rid of, mm. recognize that it's an attachment. That doesn't mean you have to, you can get rid of your attachment to things and still have those things. And that's where Ryan and I are with, with most of our things right now. Certainly with all of my things, I have no attachment to them. And and I can still have them though, and that is the difference between minimalism and and maybe being a monk in a way mm. is being able to have those things without having the attachment to those things. And why? Mm. It's because we've scrutinized the attachment so much that it becomes eradicated. It's like a monk is fasting rather than yeah having control. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. You, you look at a monk having the ultimate control, but really they're just fasting on everything. <laughs> yes. So they don't have to have control. Hmm. I, I don't even know if I believe what I just said, but that that's what that makes me think of. You know, I would take that, that experiment one step further, uh, which, and I've told Mariah that I would rather you be happy than have me in your life. Hmm. And what that means is that I really, that's how much I really love Mariah. Yes. Uh, and you for that matter, that if me being out of your life made you live a more meaningful life, then that's what I support. And brought, brought you more joy, more contentment, yeah. whatever. Like, yeah. Because the opposite would be like, I go to you and no, Ryan, you're going to be in my life. I'm going to be in yours. And we're both going to be miserable. I want you to be as happy as you can with me in it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I want you to be as miserable as you're going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of a sudden, as soon as you start saying these things out loud, you realize the absurdity yeah. of our, of our, uh, all of our attachments. Now, Ryan, I love what you said to, to Mariah there because what you were really illuminating was love. Mm. Love is devoid of attachment because it's, if it's, it's the Mike Tyson thing we talked about a few weeks ago. I'm going to F you until you love me. He mm-hmm. said that to the reporter. Yeah. We know that's not love. Right. Of course it's not. But in a way, we do that metaphorically in a very sort of passive way with the people that we love. Mm. It's like, well, I love you as long as, you know, it's conditional, right? Mm. Conditional love isn't love. That's a type of clinging. Mm. And so what you're saying is no matter what, even Mariah, if you no longer want to be with me, but that's going to make you happy. I love you enough that I'm willing mm. to detach, to be unattached. Yeah. And it's interesting because the unconditional love, don't confuse that with there are no conditions in which I won't have someone in my life because you can love someone unconditionally. 
but you can love them from a distance if necessary. Right. And in fact, the scenario we're just talking about there, that unconditional love would require you to love her from a distance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so real love involves not being attached. Mm. And that's really, really hard to even grasp for us. Right. Mm. Because we've been sold that meme for so long in our culture that, well, to need someone is to love them. Mm. I have a healthy attachment to you. No, 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 no. Attachment is attachment. It's not unhealthy or, or, or healthy, but if you attach yourself to certain things, they will drag you toward misery. Mm. We got a bunch of surprise questions from Podcast Sean, and I thought maybe we should go through a few of these. Yeah. We got Minakshi a has a question for us. What is a luxury and what is a need? What may be functional to one may be luxury to another. Is there a basic benchmark to it? For example, is owning a thousand plants a bad thing if one truly cares about them? That's the moralizing thing, right, Ryan? So the, is it bad for me to own a thousand plants? Is it good for me to own a thousand plants? No and no. But the question is, well, what is appropriate, right? Mm. Yeah, I mean, a hot shower is a luxury, you know, sure. electricity is a luxury. Uh-huh. A car is a luxury. No matter what car you have, it's a luxury. Public transit, having public transit available is a luxury. Mm. So, you know, I mean, maybe this gets back to the definition of what luxury is. But uh, when you're putting luxury ahead of you or someone else's well-being, maybe that's where it gets a little shady for me or a little complicated. Um but yeah, there's nothing wrong with having luxuries in life. There's nothing wrong with luxury items. There's nothing morally yeah. incorrect about a Maserati or a Lamborghini um, and on their own. What's but, it costing you? That's the question. Not monetarily, but what is it costing you? Yeah, including monetarily, right? Including monetarily, yeah. I mean, that's what we usually go to first to look at when it comes to luxury specifically. But there's a lot of other costs that come along with, with something like a Maserati. Right, and so so when I look at this question, I just rephrase it, right? Because I don't think of things through the lens of luxury and not luxury. Mm-hmm. You and I have the no junk rule in the minimalist rule book, theminimalists.com slash rule book, mm-hmm. patrons, if you want to check it out. Um, and it's one of our 16 rules, even though there aren't really rules. We, we illustrate that at the very beginning of the book. There are no rules for minimalism. But um, really, w- what this rule says, or this idea, this theory mm-hmm. says, is everything you own can be placed into one of three piles. Mm-hmm. You have essential, non-essential, junk. Essentials tend to be the same for almost all of us. Housing and shelter and clothing and communication and education and vocation. The, these are essentials for just about everyone. But beyond that, almost everything else is either a non-essential or junk. Non-essential items are things that add value to my life. So yeah. uh, it may I don't absolutely need a kitchen table, but it is, so it's a non-essential, but it adds immense value to my life. I sit it every day, I write there, I eat meals there, our family meets there in the morning, Bex and I read there. It's one of uh, the, the possessions I get the most value from. Yeah. Unfortunately, most of the things we own fall into this third category, junk. You could call these imaginary items. And what I mean by that is we, we pretend they, they add value to our lives, but they actually get in the way of the value. It's the reason we have so many things in our life. 
Uh, and if that's what you're calling a luxury, just having all this superfluous stuff, then I would have none of those things. I avoid having the junk because it gets in the way of the essentials. It gets in the way of the, the non-essentials that add value to my life. Mm. And so back to the question, a thousand plants? No, it's not essential. I would say nature is essential, but, but the thousand plants aren't essential. They're non-essential. But if they add immense value to your life, then how could that possibly be a bad thing? Savannah has a question for us. If success is individual to everyone, why does society still show us successful people to inspire us since it obviously makes us feel less than them? So society, I think, is the problem. And so, uh, uh, at least in my, my point of view, I, I think it's, who was it? Uh, Noah, Yuval, Harari, and Sapiens talked about um, how we were domesticated by you know, ten to 12,000 years ago. By wheat. By wheat, yeah. And, and society sort of sprung up around our domestication, right? And, and as we were domesticated, our culture, our society, and then subsequently our religions and, and our tribes, they, they began to come up with a whole bunch of shoulds and shouldn'ts and commandments and all of these these things that we are supposed to do and so why does society show us successful people to inspire us it's actually not to inspire us mm -hmm. these successful people we're seeing is to create a deficit in us and less is now annie leonard talked about deficit advertising well the only way you can sell something that someone doesn't need to someone is if you make them feel like they need it. How do you make them feel like they need it? You make them feel like there's a deficit, like they're incomplete without it. You incomplete someone in order to sell them things. That's why I think advertising was one of the biggest problems we've had in our society in a almost ever. Because advertising creates a void that we then try to fill with stuff. That void wasn't even real in the first place. Mm -hmm. We made it up. It's a myth. Yeah. So why does society do that? Because they're trying to sell you something for sure. Yeah. Arjun has a question for us. Could you suggest some ways to schedule time for better success and more structure in the daily routine? Yeah. So I, I want less structure in my days usually. And here's why, Ryan. Mm -hmm. As a person diagnosed with OCD. Yeah. I, um, you crave structure. I, I crave structure. I crave sameness. Mm. Uh, and I eat the same meals every day, et cetera. But I don't do that out of structure. Mm. I, I do it out of um, because I have something better to do. And, and what, sure. what I mean by that is, is you know, whether it's work or family or you, uh, whatever I'm immersing myself in, uh, those other things, they sort of take care of themselves. So if anything, I, especially recently, have worked really hard to have less structure in my life because... Here's the, here, here's the answer a lot of people want, Ryan. They want the, yeah, show me your calendar. Mm -hmm. And every 15 minutes, you just schedule in the appropriate. And you get out the Franklin Planner. And you have to systematize everything. And you have a method for this and a procedure for that. And that will help you better manage your time. But if you manage your time doing a bunch of things that are making you miserable, then time management was not the problem in the first place yeah There's it's interesting there it's interesting because you do have structure and you do have a daily routine but it's not something that is like necessarily in your calendar now there right. are certain things that like i have to put in my calendar and yeah. i and i have to 
structure certain things because if I don't, then I start to lose control. Um, but you know, sharing our recipe, uh, isn't going to make you any more or less successful. And so maybe if I, if I were to look at this and, and, and figure out what is the question behind the question here, Yeah. could you suggest some ways to schedule time for better success and more structure, hmm. more structure, better success? <laughs> hmm. So better success, well, depends on how you define success, but if you're talking about more acquisition, mm. then yeah, you can schedule your time in a way that will allow you to acquire more, more followers, more status, more rewards, more trophies. And if you structure your time the right way, you'll get more of those things. Is that really what you're looking for? Or are you looking for calm? Are you looking for peace? Are you looking for tranquility? Are you looking for contentment? Are you looking for meaning? Are you looking for creativity? Are you looking for creation? And those things don't require the, the regimented discipline of a highly structured schedule. I'm not worried about the seven habits of highly effective people, Ryan. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have a, a, a deficit there. Sure. Uh, There's some ingredients there you could pull from. Right. Right. But if you follow their recipe, you're not going to get what they got. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. Adam wants to know, how do you measure success, failure, fulfillment, and satisfaction since becoming minimalists? Well, you know, it's 50 items. Do you have 50 items or not? No it, more, no less. That's success. Failure is more than 50 items. Mm -hmm. Fulfillment is owning... Um, <laughs> Well, Less you know, than fifth? I, wait, yeah. now I'm confused. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. Well, you know, it's interesting because it would be great if we could have a measurement. But Adam, you need to figure out what your measurement is. If you're looking for, I would encourage you not to have a measurement. But if you need a measurement, great, come up with a measurement, Adam. Um, I don't think that'll bring you success. I think it is more likely to bring you failure. Uh, I certainly don't think it'll bring you fulfillment, and it will bring you less satisfaction because. If you're not meeting that measured that measurement, then it's going to make you dissatisfied. Um, yeah, yeah. De Deanna's question right after that says, "How do you measure success, failure?" I'm sorry. It says, uh, "What is the definition between satisfaction and fulfillment?" And I think we need to bring that into Arjun's question here. Mm. Uh, I'm sorry, into Adam's question. How do you measure success and satisfaction, and fulfillment? First, you have to define what those things are. I've stopped measuring success, and anytime I get caught up in it where I will see a follower count or something else, mm. I, I have to remind myself that like that is not, the, if anything, it's disturbing the peace yeah. if I allow it. It doesn't have to disturb the peace, yeah. but if I allow it, if I chase that, it's definitely gonna disturb my peace. Fulfillment satisfaction, yeah, satisfaction is, is born out of the moment. If you eat a satisfying meal, you are satisfied in the moment. Eventually, that satisfaction will wane. Fulfillment is more long-term thing. When you, when you talk about um, contentment, may, might be a, a synonym for that. Fulfillment, however, here's what I'll say about fulfillment. Fulfillment happens only when you show up full. If you show up empty or partially full, mm. partially empty there, mm. expecting to be filled by a th achievement, a possession, or a person, you will leave empty because those things are not going to fill you with the happiness you thought they were going to. They may create the situation in which happiness arises, as we discussed, 
but showing up full is the surefire way that you'll experience fulfillment in Mm -hmm. the moment. Yeah, the other thing that comes up for me is what we, well, it's what we wrote our first book, Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life, about. Like, I think about, you know, for me, it's about uh, living a genuine life and being able to be myself. And with that is, you know, the measure, not a measurement, but like, uh, it, it goes back to those values that we wrote about. Like, am I healthy? Mm-hmm. Do I have good relationships in my, in my life? Am I able to like cultivate some passion? Am I growing? Am I contributing? Mm-hmm. I mean, you could look at those as measurements, um, but but to me, that's what it means to live a meaningful life. So maybe a better question, Adam, is what does it mean for you to live a meaningful life? And if you could figure that out, like that is going to get, I mean, for me, at least it gets me, makes me feel not successful. I don't like this word success anymore because it's, Same. it's, Yeah. It makes because me feel by the culture. It means one thing. No, but it makes me feel to Deanna's point. It makes me feel fulfilled. Yes. And that's so I, Ooh, so I would rather, I would much rather feel, I would much rather feel fulfilled than successful. You could tweet that podcast, Sean. I, I totally agree with what you're saying there. And what I'll say about the measurement thing is as soon as we turn any of those things into a measurement, it, it, it removes us from the actual pursuit of the thing. Yeah. And, and here's what I mean by that. Measuring creativity. Mm. It, the quantitative version, I could say I write a thousand words a day or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's quantitative. It says nothing about the creation itself. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't highlight the qualitative piece of the creation. So the measuring of it is useless if the qualitative piece is not there. And, and, and so that's the form versus essence thing. The form is a thousand mm. words. The yeah. essence is the quality of the... Uh, the the experience in which I'm immersing myself in. Mm. John has a question for us. Speaking of qualities. What are the qualities of someone who handles success in a healthy way? Well, it depends on what you mean by success here. But but so who, who when I think of a successful person, mm-hmm. in my mind now, it's different from what I used to think with the the really nice suit and the car and the house. But I, I think of someone who is debt-free because that's a tether, right, or a, an anchor or a attachment. A- and I look at someone who it has a relative amount of freedom. Mm-hmm. And if someone is experiencing freedom, legitimate freedom in their life, then that is a type of success for me. That That is the life that brings me brings me peace and anytime we give up our freedoms we're failing in a way yeah this again makes me think of elon musk and this isn't like an endorsement for him it's just he comes up because recently he's been listed as like the richest man in the world he has surpassed bezos as being the richest man in the world oh, wow. but someone tweeted at him and they're like hey man you're the richest man in the world now and he was like well that's weird well i guess i'm gonna go back to work because like, he wasn't doing it and that is for me like that's i mean Success and healthy, I, I don't know, like it's it's a weird wordplay that I'm not comfortable with right now, but I will say that ostensibly he looks, Elon Musk looks, looks very successful, but he has a, in my opinion, has a healthy attitude towards it where he's not doing it for the success. Yes, I'm sure he likes being successful. He likes being a billionaire. Uh, you know, there are a lot of luxuries he has, but he ha- he's actually been downsizing recently. I don't know if you've like seen any of that stuff. I heard stuff. something. Jessica just shared something with me. Yeah, he's been doing a ton of downsizing because he's realizing like with, you know, 
all these properties and things like there's attachments there are things that you have to do there are costs involved that he's not willing to pay um but yes i mean when you get to that level of being able to just be yourself and talking what about what josh has said about having true freedom um when you can do that unencumbered by the attachment to a result that to me is uh handling success in a healthy way if i was to define it i, I guess. like that Simple Prima has a question for us. Winners never quit and quitters never win. What do you think about this? <laughs> you know, the the statement itself it sounded appealing to a very, very young version of myself. It's This is hustle, hustle culture. We see this now with uh, The Rock and with uh, uh, Gary Vee. And, sure. and there's nothing wrong with hustling. There, if that's what you want to do, it is a extreme chase. No question about that. But if you prefer the chase to peace, then hustle culture makes a lot of sense. It doesn't make sense for me. There's a new show out right now, Ryan. It's called Undercover Billionaire. Have you heard about it? Mm -hmm. uh, this guy Grant Cardone is on it. You know who he is? No. He's like a really well-known real estate mogul. I'm not a big fan of Grant Cardone. Um, but um, I actually had an idea for this show uh, 11, no, in 2011. So what was that? 10 years ago. Hmm. And I, I ran it by my friend Julian Smith. You remember Julian? Yeah. Uh, he runs a company called Breather now. And because it was when, right when I first walked away from the corporate world, he's like, "Well, aren't you worried about making money? Mm. Uh, you know, now now that you've walked away from this big money, I'm like, no, I've downsized significantly. I'm not really worried about that. I know that I can make money if I need to make money, but it's not why I'm doing this to make money. And and I said, I'll tell you what. If I ever had to, Julian, you could drop me in any city in North America mm -hmm. with no money and I could make $250,000 that first year. Mm -hmm. I guarantee it. Mm -hmm. I, however, am not willing to pay that cost or anything even close to that cost. Right. And in this show, they, they, they literally do this. They, they take Grant Cardone and two other women. Um, I, I didn't know these women. Actually, one of, them's, uh, one of the women is... Uh, Timbaland, the uh, producer, his former spouse, and she's super talented. She runs a, a giant business, and this other woman who's a real estate mogul. And um, anyway, with, with Grant in particular, they put him in Pueblo, Colorado, a really depressed mm -hmm. uh, uh, town mm -hmm. relative to you know where he is in Miami or wherever he's from. And they put him there in Pueblo, and they say, you have 90 days with, you don't have your name either, which mm -hmm. is an extra crazy step there. So he doesn't have his clout, his name, right. whatever. He started from zero, $100 in his pocket, a truck, and nowhere to stay. Yeah, We're dropping you here with 100 bucks mm -hmm. and 90 days to, build, uh, to make a million dollars. However you build a business, work for someone, whatever, mm -hmm. you have 90 days to make a million dollars. And it made me think like, I don't know whether or not I could do that. Like I said, I, in a year, I could probably make $250,000. Um, but I would have to pay a lot of costs. And what I saw Grant have to do, like on day one immediately, he's he's doing a bunch of things I would never, ever, ever want to do. He's mm. getting involved in retail businesses and, and, and doing all of these things that are not in, in line with my values. Mm. They're the antithesis of my values. Yeah. And so he is paying, so could I do it? Yes, but could you do something 
is a terrible reason to do something. Mm. Yes, I could make a good amount of money if I was willing to compromise all my values. Mm. Ryan, both of us could go rob a bank and make a good amount of money. Oh, yeah. Uh, make a million bucks in a day. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, but but even if it wasn't illegal, that's not something I would want to do because it's not in a line with my values. Mm. And so when I'm thinking about winners never quit, quitters never win, well, that's silly because... Well, competition is a mental illness, first off. Mm. But sometimes it's appropriate to quit because not quitting is a form of attachment. So Some, never, sometimes you win by quitting. Oh, <laughs> tweet that podcast, Sean. <laughs> Cole has a question for us. Any process for doing a personal inventory? You know, you and I talked about this off mic, and you said, hey, this question really makes me think about the values worksheet. And I'm wondering... It's a type of inventory. Yeah. Is, is, is this a type of... Um, Maybe it's a healthy inventory. Is it? Yeah. Or, or is it a type of attachment as well? Oh, values are definitely an attachment. Well, I don't know about that. And, and let, me, let, me, let, me, let me explore this with you. Because sure. they might be. Um, I think values... When, when I use the term values... So we have a values worksheet at The Minimalist. You can download it for free. You can read the essay about understanding your values there. It's theminimalists.com slash V. Mm-hmm. And if it becomes a chasing, a metric, if you value a million Instagram followers, mm. that's an imaginary value. That's the fourth kind of value. It's the things we think will make us happy. Yeah. But actually get in the way of the three other types of values. So we have the foundational values, right? That's the, we build a foundation before we build a house. And, and I think those are similar for just about everyone. Health, relationships, um, creativity, yeah. contribution, and um, your personal growth, mm-hmm. whatever we want to call it. And, and I think those are similar for everyone. If we become attached to them, if they turn into attachment, attachments, as Anthony DeMello says, if our heart hardens to those things, mm-hmm. then yes, that can then become a form of chasing. And I don't even want to chase a better health outcome for myself. Hmm. That's not ideal for me. What I want to do is scrutinize the root of the problem mm-hmm. to eradicate that problem. And, and so when I look at a question about personal inventory... Yes, I think it's really helpful to understand what we value. Sure. Especially those imaginary values. Yeah. Because really what we're saying is, if I'm taking personal inventory, Sean used to do this with us all the time. When we were back in the corporate world, we ran a bunch of retail stores. Mm. And Sean did inventory for a bunch of them. And and so we'd have, you know, Sarbox Oxley demands us to do a, a quarterly cycle and all these different things. and And all of a sudden... We are taking an inventory and you're realizing that like, oh, we have way too many Mm. of this item. Yeah. And when we do a personal inventory, especially with our values, we might realize like, oh, I'm valuing a lot of things that I don't actually value. Mm. And if I realize that, if I understand it then I will automatically change my behaviors. It's not about changing my behaviors. It's about having a deeper understanding. When you have that deeper understanding, the behaviors change on their own. Mm. David has a question for us. How can you find satisfaction if you are a hungry person and are never satisfied? 
How do you change that mindset? Now, Ryan, if you were to rephrase this question, mm. what would how, what would you do? How can you find satisfaction if you're a hungry person and never satisfied? I would just take out the are a hungry person. How can you find satisfaction if you are never satisfied? Oh, isn't that? I mean, and that exposes the whole question, mm. doesn't it? Yeah. Of course, if you're never satisfied, you won't find satisfaction. How do you change that mindset? You have to get to the root of the problem. Well, mm. you know, this is going back to the attachment thing. You're mm. attached to the wrong things. And I know that you probably disagree with this, Josh, but I do. the values, um, we are attached to our values. Um, I'm, a, uh, or I'm speaking to myself. I'm attached to being health, a healthy person. I'm attached to uh, being a good partner to Mariah. I'm attached to um, having good relationships, which maybe I'm repeating myself there. But these, I would love to sit here and be like, oh, I'm a monk and you could put me in a prison cell with one grain of rice mm-hmm. a day and I could totally be okay. That's not true. I wouldn't be. I'd be miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I'll get to that point at some at some point. Mm-hmm. But I think realistically, uh, you know, we could look at the Buddha as an example, but we're not all going to be the Buddha. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to, you know, changing your mindset, David, the question I would ask you is... What are you attaching yourself to? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I yeah, I think again, it's just like the chase thing, and we can expound on this if you want to. But we are always going to be attached to something. We're always going to be, maybe not chasing. Maybe the word's attached. Maybe maybe I'm rephrasing this now, and that's why we're having these conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so how uh, talk to me about why we aren't attached to values. Or not why we aren't, but... uh, Why I'm not. I can talk to you about why I'm not. Sure. Um, Because I know that my values are a reflection of who I am, and I have not set them up in a way. I did this in the past. Don't get me wrong. So Mm. there was a time where my values were an attachment, Mm. where I valued corporate significance, right? Sure. That was a structural value for me. Mm Mm-hmm corporate significance and and uh, corporate validation you could call it you know, a bunch mm. of a bunch of different words there but that was a value of mine mm. and that was a societally created value that yeah. I had attached myself onto but when the truth is that I value health mm-hmm. I needn't be attached to it in order to be happy and I've experienced moments of joy and bliss even with my my current you know um, disease and ailments that you're not attached to being healthy you you would say you're not attached to being healthy i'm saying whenever i'm attached to being healthy i experience misery Mm. and and Mm. so by detaching from that there are there are plenty of moments where i've detached from it now Mm. i i do occasionally re-anchor myself and i experience misery as a result maybe there's a better word well it's not about the word it's about the essence of this right yeah but the essence is you want to be healthy the essence is, is you want to be a good partner to Bex. I have a deep desire to be healthy. The yes. essence is, is that you want to communicate what we're communicating now via book, podcast. There's no attached to the outcomes, but there is an attachment to the truth, to getting the truth out there. Mm. And uh, again, like, I don't know. If that's what you mean by attachment, I have no problem with it. Um yeah. So, all right. So, okay. So, so I, but I, because th- I'm trying to help David here. Uh-huh. He's asking how to change the mindset. Mm-hmm. If he's someone who's never satisfied, the question is, is what are you attached to that you're never feeling satisfied with? What are you, what are you chasing that you're never going to feel satisfied with? Right. So that is where you start. And then the question is, is how can you 
find attachments? How can you find a chase that isn't going to leave you empty inside, to leave you hungry? And yeah, if you can become the Buddha and let go of all attachments whatsoever, even though, yeah, I know it's interesting because like even I could, I could, in my mind, I, I, again, I'm not saying that this is right or wrong. It's just in my head, I'm like kind of having this cluster of, but the Buddha was attached. I mean, that's fine. If, if that's what you mean by attachment, that, yeah. that's, that's totally fine. I, I, yeah. uh, I totally understand. As I say. Yeah, yeah, as you say. <laughs> and, 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 and what I will say is that attachment, as far as I understand it, mm-hmm. is that I'm attached to a person, thing, or achievement mm-hmm. upon which my happiness depends. Mm. Now, if I don't let my happiness depend on my health, my relationships then I can experience those things, those values, without being attached to them. And mm. I can have a desire in the moment. Desire is momentary. It always is. There are no mm. future desires. Mm. I can have a desire to be with someone or to experience something or to own an item that will bring value to my life. I can have that desire without having an attachment. And mm-hmm. so I don't think it's about picking our attachments or picking our chases. Mm-hmm. I think it's about identifying the attachments we have, dropping those, and then understanding what I truly desire. Maybe that's yeah. how I would say it. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's it's uh, it's interesting, though, because even the idea of dropping attachments is still a desired outcome. It's still a... I agree. An expectation. I, I agree. And so so if, if the goal becomes to become unattached, one never becomes unattached. Ooh. And, and so so it's about examining the attachment. Because once you understand the attachment for what it is, yeah. it disappears. There it is. It's like you you know when you see that thing in your periphery mm. and all of a sudden you look at it and it's gone? Mm. That's an attachment. Yeah. JDS Tex has a question for us. Hey, Josh, I have a question before I ask this. How do I find life balance? <laughs> no, his question is how do I find work-life balance? What, what does that really mean, though? When do people ask this question? They are overworked. Uh, They're overworking themselves. They're overextending themselves, and they are in a position that they feel that is unsustainable. And I, if they're asking this question, they're, that's probably what's happening. Or they're overlifed. Or they're overlifed. You're never over. You're never overlifed. You're always overworked. Right? Isn't that the thing? Like when people ask this question, it never comes from a place of like, you know, I spend too much time with my family. I exercise way <laughs> yeah. too much, and uh, my, I, I, I spend appropriate amount of time eating healthy meals. Mm. The my big problem is I just don't work enough. Mm. Now the person who's asking how do I find work life balance is is saying. How do I stop working so much? Here's what I will say. I think by and large, balance encourages mediocrity. And if that's what you're seeking is Mm. mediocrity, there's nothing wrong with that. Mediocrity is not a bad word. I'm mediocre in most of the things I do. Let me give you an example. I cook my own meals almost every day, and I do a very mediocre job of it. Mm. There's no excellence in my chef skills Mm. and I'm totally fine with it it's not wrong it's not bad it's not uh I shouldn't get better like there's it's none of that it is merely saying that I don't have a deep desire to become a chef and so work when we think about the term work what we're talking about is that well I have to show up and I feel like I'm working too many hours 
I never feel like I'm working too many hours, Ryan, because I have a deep desire to do the the work that we do. Yeah. And in doing that, it's not like, oh, I can't believe we have to record a podcast today or I can't believe I have to write this thing. It, I don't need balance at all. I simply do the thing. And so, so yeah, but even if you did feel that way, we would just be like, okay, then we're not going to record as many podcasts. Bingo. It's yeah. I mean, there are uh, there are times when you've had health problems where you're like, hey, uh, I'm not going to do interviews. I'm mm-hmm. not going to do this. Can you do this for me? And I'm like, yeah, great. I'll do that for you. And I don't feel overworked. And if I did, I'd be like, no, I can't do those things. So I guess they're not going to get done. And that's okay. Right. And yeah. so so really, what you're saying there is sometimes we we say no because we realize we don't have the capacity to do a thing. Mm-hmm. Just because you have the time to do a thing doesn't mean you have the capacity to do that thing. Mm-hmm. Tweet that podcast, Sean. And, and and so I think unfortunately we mistake it as like, well, I can say yes to this, or it's just one more yes, or, or whatever it is. But, but we get buried by our yeses, yeah. and, and, and that's how we become obligated and committed to a bunch of things we don't want to be obligated to or committed to, right? And so how do I find work-life balance? I found it by not looking for it anymore. The problem for me was looking for work-life balance. There are 168 hours in a week and I'm going to schedule them out methodically and ordinarily and, and I'm going to alphabetize my week. And by the end of it, I was really stressed out and miserable, not sleeping enough mm. because I was fully balanced. <laughs> and so, yeah, I reject your question. <laughs> <laughs> Victoria has a question for us. Do you believe we always have to aim for success to get satisfaction? Is there so much talk around goals that it's hard to find satisfaction in the small things now? Is there so much talk around goals that it's hard to find satisfaction in the small things now? Yeah. I mean, don't you think sometimes, Ryan, that uh, our goals make us utterly miserable? Yeah, man. Well, I mean, this question is assuming there's so much talk around goals. And with that assumption, yes, (laughs) it is hard to find satisfaction in the small. It's hard to hear the symphony Mm-hmm. If you're focused on goals rather than just listening to the symphony. It's proving my point that that society is a major problem here. There's so much talk about goals. That's in our culture, right? Mm-hmm. Other cultures don't talk about goals and uh, success and achievement in the same way. Mm. A lot of cultures don't have a word for success, but they have words for peace and equanimity, right? Mm. And eudaimonia, mm. but not success. The first part of her question, she said... Do you believe we always have to aim for success to get satisfaction? No, I believe we need to not aim for success in order to get satisfaction. We uh, don't get satisfied by our achievements. Mm. Uh, in fact, um, they give us faux satisfaction because we get there and it's like, oh yeah, I published the book and then all of a sudden now what? Or I finished the tour and oh, now I feel depressed. It's like because we expected some major thing to happen. Once we flip the switch, Ryan, everything is perfect. We flip the switch and now I've made success. Here comes the satisfaction rolling in. I can't get faux <laughs> satisfaction. And you, you never can. <laughs> I try. <laughs> I try. Valentina has a question for us. How does perfectionism sabotage our personal 
Satisfaction. A lot of satisfied satisfaction questions. You know, perfectionism. I used to have an I used to have an allergy to perfect, mm. right? Because well, our society tells us you can't be perfect, right? I totally disagree with that now. I disagree with my former self on this. Yeah. And, and here's why. I think perfectionism gets in the way of the perfect. Yeah. Tweet that podcast, Sean. Absolutely. And here's what I mean by that. When we're born, we're perfect. Children are perfect. And then they learn language and they learn about culture and society and sit up straight and raise your hand and do what you're told. And we beat the perfect out of them, sometimes mm -hmm. literally, mm -hmm. but usually figuratively. Yeah. The innocence, the awe, the wonder. That's perfect. It's so, and we experience all the time as adults now, it's just these fleeting moments, a few seconds, playing basketball and everything's going just right. It's perfect. Not because every shot went in, not that, not measure, you can't measure perfect. Mm. That's like measuring who's the most successful child. Mm. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> it makes me think of perfection that was promised to me through the religion that I was brought up in. Okay. But the perfection, what it entailed was destruction mm. of so many things. Like once, once Jesus kills enough people, once Jesus gets rid of the right spiritual entities and whatever, like that. So there's all this destruction that has to happen in order for something to be perfect. And not all Christian religions believe this. No, it was your no, particular no. It was, it was my particular, yeah, yeah, evangelical, very strict Christian thing. But it's like, there's something, it's almost like we have to do all these imperfect things before it, before it's perfect. Yeah. But. You I realize that make. perfection is the default state. Yeah. And all we do is we heap achievements and yeah. expectations and stuff mm. and relationships and agony and toxicity mm. in, on top of that perfect. So, of course, life is imperfect. Mm-hmm because of what we have done to it. Mm. And so if we drop the perfectionism, we realize that it was perfect all along. Yeah. What a beautiful place to end it. Amen. Ryan, I love you. I love you more. Patrons, thank you so much for uh, being here with us. We certainly appreciate you. We're grateful for your time, your attention, and your two bucks. Yeah, you're awesome. All right, y'all. Love you. people use things. The minimalists. <laughs>